Volume 1, Chapter 4, Part 1 of A Popular History of England from the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. A Popular History of England from the Earliest Times to the Reign of Queen Victoria by François-Pierre-Guillaume Guizot, Chapter 4, Part 1 The Saxon and Danish Kings The Conquest of England by the Normans, 901-1066 to One hundred and sixty-five years elapsed between the death of Alfred and the invasion of England by William the Conqueror. Two dynasties reigned during that period in England, first the Saxon, which numbered ten sovereigns, and secondly the Danish, which was represented by four princes. The first of the Saxon kings, Edward, the son of Alfred, did not enjoy a very brilliant reign, but contrived to make his authority recognised with the help of his sister Ethelfleda, widow of Ethelred, the viceroy of Mercia. He drove back the Danes into their territory, a portion of which he conquered, and, at the death of his sister, he annexed Mercia to his states, which he left thus augmented to his son Athelstan when he died in 925. This young prince was brave as well as able. He placed the Welsh tribes, always ripe for revolt, under subjection, and imposed upon them an annual tribute of gold, silver, and cattle. He repelled the people of Cornwall, who had never been thoroughly subjected by Alfred. But the Danes had not accepted their defeat. King Olaf, who was established in Northumbria, and who had recently pushed his conquest so far in Ireland as to capture the town of Dublin, ascended the Humber with more than 600 vessels. The Scots at the same time attacked the frontiers, and the Britons from Wales once more revolted. So many enemies rising suddenly did not daunt Athelstan. He triumphed over his opponents. Five Danish kings remained on the soil, as well as the king of Scotland's son. They all retired into their territories, there to remain until the end of the reign of Athelstan, whose court attained a degree of luxury hitherto unknown to the Saxon kings. It was there that Louis d'Outremer took refuge when driven from France, and it was thence that he was recalled to the throne at the death of Charles the Simple. All England recognised the laws of Athelstan, and he had taken the title of King of the Anglo-Saxons, instead of the less assuming one of King of Wessex, when he died in 940, at the age of 47 years, leaving the throne to his brother Edmund. The reign of the latter, like that of his brother Edred, presents nothing remarkable, with the exception of a series of battles with the Danes, who were sometimes daring and victorious, and sometimes beaten and repulsed. At the death of Edred in 955, the Danes of Northumbria were apparently almost entirely subjected. Their chiefs had lost the title of kings, and their territory was governed by an earl chosen by the Saxons. The progress had been great since the time of Alfred. Young Edwy, the son of Edmund, was only fifteen years of age when he succeeded to the throne. The Danes left him in peace, but he commenced a struggle against the clergy of his kingdom, enemies more powerful than the sea kings, 
He had married Elgiva, a young and beautiful princess, whose family was related to his own within the degree of kinship prohibited by the church, and he refused to abandon his wife, as also to submit to be reproved by the Archbishop of Canterbury, Odo, who was supported by the famous abbot of Glastonbury, Dunstan, renowned throughout England for his austere mode of living. On the occasion of the coronation of the young king, Dunstan, being annoyed, retired during the banquet. Edwy flew into a passion, and threats were so quickly followed by action that Dunstan was obliged to make his escape and was immediately pursued by the emissaries of the king, who were instructed to burn out his eyes. Archbishop Odo, however, had remained in England at the head of the austere party of the church. The disagreement between the king and the clergy was growing more and more serious when a revolt of the Danes took place in Northumbria and extended into Mercia. Soon afterwards, Edgar, a younger brother of Edwy, until then king of Mercia, was declared the independent sovereign of the two provinces. Family afflictions assailed the young king at the same time. His wife had been seized in one of his castles by a wandering band of soldiers and carried to Ireland, where her beautiful face had been disfigured by red-hot irons. Dunstan had just reappeared in England after a short period of exile, at the time when the young queen, who had been tended and looked after by the friends whom she had made in Ireland, and had now recovered from the effects of her disfigurement, was returning to England to rejoin her husband. She was stopped, however, near Gloucester by her implacable enemies, who no doubt credited her with a fatal influence over her husband. She was so cruelly mutilated by them that she died a few days afterwards. Edwy survived her but a short time and died at the age of 19 in 958. The beauty of his personal appearance had gained him the title of Edwy the Beautiful. When Edgar ascended the throne of his brother Edwy, Dunstan shared it with him, and whatever may have been the part played by him in the events of the last reign, the authority of the king bore, in the hands of the monk, the fruits of order and justice. The Danes, attached to young Edgar, who had been brought up amongst them, submitted voluntarily to his authority. Their territory was divided and placed under the rule of several earls. The fleet, greatly augmented, kept the sea kings in constant fear, and the young sovereign of England, assisted by his able minister, who had become Archbishop of Canterbury, traversed his state every year, presiding at courts of justice and gathering around him the principal chiefs of each province. Ardent and ambitious, Dunstan was at the same time of a firm disposition and character. His practical knowledge was as conspicuous as his religious zeal. He was one of that great race of priests whose influence, pre-eminent in the Middle Ages, was the source of much good and evil alike, until the period when the magnitude of their pretensions and the abuse of their power brought about the great revolt of the Reformation. It was under King Edgar that the Welshmen saw their annual tribute of gold and silver commuted for an annual presentation of three hundred wolves' heads, a measure which ensured the destruction of these ferocious animals, who were very numerous in England. King Edgar, who was under the authority of Dunstan, contrived, however, 
sometimes to escape from his influence and to indulge in all kinds of excesses, but the archbishop on such occasions would reprove him severely. He imposed upon him as a penance for a serious transgression the disuse of his golden crown during a period of seven years, a severe punishment for the vain Edgar, who dearly loved to bestow upon himself titles as pompous as those of the Oriental princes. Death soon put an end to this penance. Edgar died in 975, leaving two sons. The elder, Edward, who succeeded him, had been born of his first wife. The younger, Ethelred, was the son of the beautiful but treacherous Elfrida, for whom the king had conceived a violent passion, and whom he had married after the death of her husband. Edgar was even accused of having willfully killed the latter in the hunting field. Whatever crime may have been committed by the king in order to gain the hand of Elfrida, the expiation fell to the lot of his children. From the commencement of his reign, the young Edward, although supported by Archbishop Dunstan, sat very insecurely upon his throne, which was undermined by intrigues in favour of his brother Ethelred. Three years after his accession, Edward was hunting one day in Dorsetshire, when he conceived the fatal idea of paying a visit to his brother, who was then residing in Corfe Castle. It may be that on his arrival he was struck with a terrible presentiment at the sight of his stepmother Elfrida, for he refused to dismount, and asked only for some refreshment in order to drink to the health of the Queen. A goblet was brought to him, but while he was carrying it to his lips, a dagger was plunged in his back. His body quivered with agony, and the horse, alarmed, rushed away, carrying across the forest the body of the young king, held fast by the stirrups. When the body was found, it was disfigured by the shrubs and stones of the roads, and the long fair hair of the martyred king was clotted with blood and dirt. Queen Elfrida had accomplished her object, but not without trouble, for the young Ethelred, grieved at the death of his brother, burst into tears, which irritated his mother to such a degree that he nearly fell a victim to her blows. There remained no other heir to the throne, Dunstan and his friends decided, not without some reluctance, to recognise the claims of the son of Elfrida, but in crowning him, Dunstan, it is said, gave utterance to some sinister predictions concerning the misfortunes which threatened his reign, and it was he who gave to this young king that title of careless, which the latter seemed only anxious to justify. For several years, the Danes, who were established in England, seemed to have identified themselves with the Saxon race. The invasions of the Norsemen had ceased, occupied as they were with devastating the coasts of France, which were but badly defended by the feeble Carlovingians. But a new dynasty was about to be established in France, more powerful and more warlike than the descendants of Charlemagne. Already the Danes began to return to their old habits, and to turn their vessels towards the English coasts. The son of the King of Denmark, Prince Swain, resolved to seek his fortune in foreign lands. A band of bold adventurers gathered round him, and after several little preliminary expeditions, they landed in 991 on the coast of East Anglia, between Ipswich and Malden. 
They hoped to find friends there among the Danes, who had formerly settled in that territory. But Earl Brethnolt, who was in command there, although a Dane by birth, remained faithful to his new country and religion. He fought valiantly against his brothers from across the seas, and was killed in battle. King Ethelred became frightened. He sent offers of money to the Norsemen. The latter accepted ten thousand pounds of silver, which they stowed away in their long vessels, and carrying with them the head of Count Brethnolt, they started to return to their own country. But the plan of defence, so often resorted to by the Carlovingian kings in France, was a sure means of bringing back the sea kings the following year. Soon Ethelred found himself compelled to establish a regular tax which was known as Danegelt, Danish money, and which served to pay the ever-increasing tribute exacted by the pirates. In 993, the Danes of Northumbria and of East Anglia rose up to support their countrymen in invading the country. Sweyn had become king of Denmark and had the whole forces of that country at his command. In 994, his ships appeared off the English coasts, accompanied by the vessels of Olaf, king of Norway, his ally. The invaders encountered no resistance from the king, nor any serious opposition from his subjects. Silver was again offered, but this time, as though to lessen the humiliation of the treaty, the Saxons demanded the conversion of the Danes to Christianity. Sweyn did not hesitate to accede to this. He caused himself to be baptised, a ceremony which was considered very unimportant by the majority of the pirates, some of whom openly boasted that they had been washed twenty times in the baptismal water. But Sweyn's ally, King Olaf, who was sincerely touched and moved, no doubt, by the grace of God, made a vow never to return to invade England, and kept his promise. Sweyn reappeared alone the following year. In 1001, the Danes overran the country, from the Isle of Wight to Bristol, without meeting with the slightest resistance. The price of their withdrawal that year amounted to £20,000 of silver. The Danes had disappeared, but the unlucky King of England had become involved in fresh difficulties through his quarrels with Richard, Duke of Normandy. A fleet was being raised against him on the Norman coast when Richard died, leaving to his son Richard II the burden of carrying on the war. The interference of the Pope put an end to the quarrel, which was followed by the marriage of Ethelred with the Countess Emma, sister of Richard, who was called the Flower of Normandy. Ethelred already had six sons and four daughters by his first wife. The young queen had just arrived in England, and the rejoicings were scarcely at an end, when a prolonged cry was heard throughout the country. Either by a spontaneous movement, or in consequence of secret orders, the Saxons had risen in every direction and had slaughtered the Danes who were established in their midst and whose reiterated insults had become unendurable. A Norseman is equal to ten Saxons, the Danish lords haughtily said. But the ten Saxons united had triumphed over the Norsemen. Taken by surprise on the 13th of November, St. Bryce's Day, women, old men and children Good and wicked, big and little, pagans and Christians, succumbed under the effects of the popular hate and revenge. 
The sister of King Swain, Gunhilda, who had embraced the Christian faith in order to marry Palric, Earl of Northumbria, a chief of Danish extraction, saw her husband and children murdered before her eyes, and afterwards encountered the general fate herself. "'My brother will drown your country in blood when he revenges me,' she exclaimed when dying. Gunhilda had not been mistaken. Already the news of the crime which had been committed in England had spread to Denmark. An immense fleet was being prepared. The Norsemen, actuated this time by their thirst for revenge as well as by their natural love of plunder, were gathering eagerly round their king. Not a serf, not a freedman, not an old soldier was admitted into this chosen band. The free men, in the flower of their youth and strength, alone had the privilege of avenging their brothers slaughtered in a foreign land. The ships of the sea kings were resplendent with the golden and silver ornaments with which they were decked, from prow to stern, when the great dragon, with King Swain on board, was the first to land in the neighbourhood of Exeter. The defence of the town had been entrusted to a Norman, Count Hugo, who had come from France with Queen Emma. He betrayed King Ethelred and gave up the town to the invaders. Having pillaged and burnt down Exeter, the Danes spread throughout Wiltshire. On arriving at a farm or at a house or a village, they would order the trembling inmates to prepare a meal. Then, having satiated their appetites with meat and mead, they would murder the inmates upon the threshold of their huts, which they would then burn down and remount their horses to go forth and extend their fearful ravages. The Saxon king, meanwhile, was organising an army, but he had entrusted the command of it to the Mercian Elfric, the chief who had already upon a previous occasion betrayed him, and whose son's eyes had been put out in consequence as a punishment. Arriving before Swain and his army, Elfric declared that he was taken ill, and recalling his soldiers, who were preparing for the struggle, he allowed Swain to pass with the enormous booty that he was going to place on board his ships before descending upon the eastern counties, which all suffered in the same manner. When the Danes returned into their country in 1004, they were escaping not from the Saxon arms, but from the famine which their ravages had brought upon England. In vain did King Ethelred solicit the help of his father-in-law, Richard, the Norman Duke. The disdain which he evinced towards his young wife had irritated the Normans to such a degree that their duke had caused to be thrown into prison all English subjects who happened to be within his dominion. Ethelred therefore found himself alone and a prey to the pirates who reappeared in 1006 upon the English coasts. England was exhausted. Scarcely had the Danes left a house after exacting a ransom for each member of the family and for each head of cattle, then the king's collectors would follow in their steps, demanding the sums necessary for paying off the invaders and imposing a fresh penalty for the punishment of the unhappy wretches who had given money to the Danes. While the Saxon king was plundering his subjects in order to pay an ever-increasing Danegeld, while the people, exhausted, were writhing under the double extortion of the conquerors and of the legitimate sovereign, an old man was enabled, single-handed, 
to resist the demands of the proud Danes. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Elphege, had for twenty days defended his town against the reiterated assaults of the enemy, when a traitor opened the gates to the Danes. They rushed into the place, mad with anger and thirsting for revenge. They sent for the old Archbishop, who had not sought refuge in any hiding place. He was brought forth, bound in chains, before their chief, Thurkill. "'By your life!' cried the chief, touched with compassion. "'I have no money,' the Archbishop calmly replied. The Danes were beginning to close round him. "'He is a servant of God,' said Thurkill. "'Perhaps he is poor.' and he suggested a small sum as ransom for the archbishop. "'Prevail upon your king to collect together the value of all his property, so that we may leave England,' he added. The old man looked at him impassively. "'I have not the money which you ask for,' he repeated, "'and I shall not urge the king to further oppress his people in order to purchase your departure.' The eyes of the Dane flushed with anger he no longer endeavoured to protect the archbishop against his soldiers. But the firmness of the old man had produced a wonderful effect upon them. He was led into prison without suffering the slightest injury. Towards dusk, when he was alone, his brother found a means of reaching him. He brought the sum fixed upon for the ransom of the archbishop. No, the latter said, I cannot consent to enrich the enemies of my country. The Danes came hourly, urging the old man to purchase his freedom. "'You will urge me in vain at last,' said Elphege. "'I am not the man to provide Christian flesh for pagan teeth "'by robbing my flock to enrich their enemies.' The pirates had lost all patience. It was late. They were already heated with drink. They dragged the old man out of prison. "'Gold, Bishop! Give us gold!' they all cried together, and they closed round him threateningly. The old man was silent. He was praying. Hustled, beaten, wounded, the archbishop fell upon a pile of bones, the remains of the rude banquet. His enemies seized these primitive weapons, and he fell under their blows. A Dane, to whom he was still preaching the gospel an hour before, and whom he had baptised with his own hands, at length took a hatchet and put an end to the old man's agony. While Elphege was resisting and dying, Ethelred was submitting and paying an enormous sum of money, abandoning at the same time several counties to the Danes. Thurkill settled in England after swearing fidelity to the Saxon monarch. His conquests excited the envy of Swain. In the following year, a large fleet appeared in the Humber and landed near York. This time the invaders planted their lances in the ground or threw them into the rivers to intimate that they took possession of the soil. The Saxons offered no resistance. Swain had overrun all the Midland and northern counties, and, leaving the fleet to the care of his son Canute, he marched towards the south. He was stopped near London, where the king had taken refuge, and where the brave citizens stood firm behind their massive walls. Swain did not attempt to conquer their town, he turned towards the west, and all Devonshire received him with open arms. He was proclaimed king at Bath. 
Ethelred was gradually losing the little power which he still retained. He suddenly left London, which surrendered soon afterwards, and he took refuge in the Isle of Wight. From thence he sent his wife Emma to Normandy, with the two sons whom she had borne to him, Edward and Alfred. In spite of his disagreements with his brother-in-law, the Duke Richard received his sister with so much kindness that Ethelred soon followed her, and arrived at Rouen while Swain was taking the title of King of England, January 1013. Titles are easily taken, but conquests are sometimes difficult to keep. Six weeks after the flight of the Saxon king, the Danish king died suddenly at Gainsborough, and the power was slipping from the hands of his son Canute. The nobility and people of England had recalled Ethelred to the throne. They added, however, the words, providing that he will govern us better than heretofore. The king did not rely entirely upon the promises of his subjects. He sent his son Edward to negotiate with the principal chief. When he re-entered London, his first care was to declare that no Danish prince could have any pretensions to the throne. But Canute had already been proclaimed king by his army and by the Danes established in England, and the war had recommenced. Ethelred died in the year 1016, in the midst of all this confusion, and at the time when the Danes were preparing to lay siege to London. Three sons by his first wife yet remained to Ethelred. One of them, Edmund, called Ironsides, on account of his strength and prowess, had already commanded the armies during the lifetime of his father. He was proclaimed king. But the country was divided. The Danes established throughout the kingdom were powerful and numerous. Treason crept even into the most intimate councils of the new king. Twice he delivered London when besieged. He fought five pitched battles and repulsed on several occasions the Danes, driving them northwards. At length he proposed to Canute that they should decide their pretensions to the crown by the fate of arms in a single combat. Unlike the majority of his race, Canute was not tall, and he was quite unfitted to sustain a struggle against the gigantic stature of Edmund. "'Let us rather divide the kingdom, as our ancestors did before us,' he said. The two armies received this proposition with acclamation. The north of England was allotted to Canute, and Edmund contented himself with the south, with a nominal right of sovereignty over the whole kingdom.' One month afterwards, the Saxon king was dead, and Canute, convoking the Wittena Gemot of the south, protested that the treaty contained no stipulation in favour of Edmund's heirs. The chiefs declared themselves of the same opinion. The Dane was proclaimed king of all England, and the children of Ironsides were placed in his hands. Canute had proclaimed an amnesty, but on seizing power, he immediately prescribed all the partisans of Edmund whom he did not put to death. Whoever brings me the head of an enemy shall be dearer to me than a brother, said he. Many heads were brought to him. The Witena Jamot, which had until then excluded from the throne all the Danish princes, voted the same sentence against the Saxon princes. Canute, however, had not assassinated the children of Edmund. He sent them to his ally, the King of Sweden, no doubt with sinister intentions, but the innocence and beauty of his victims 
touched the heart of the proud Scandinavian. He could not keep them by his side, and he therefore sent them to the court of the King of Hungary, St. Stephen, who received them kindly and brought them up carefully. One of them, Edmund, died early. The second, Edward, subsequently married Agatha, daughter of the Emperor of Germany, and we shall see his children reappear in history. The Duke Richard of Normandy did not protest in the name of his nephews against the elevation of Canute. On the contrary, he even offered his sister, widow of Ethelred, in marriage to the Dane. Canute accepted this offer, and the Norman princess found herself placed for the second time on the throne of England, which was so dear to her heart that, in order to reach it, she stifled all her natural instincts. As soon as she had borne a son to Canute, she lost all affection for the children whom she had left in France, and who became more and more Normans by habit during their prolonged absence from England. Power has different effects upon different men. It hardens and corrupts some, while it humanises and exalts others. Canute made good use of his power, and when he was delivered from the enemies whom he dreaded most, his government became less severe and more regular than that of the recent Saxon kings. The English followed their new chief in all his wars, and fought valiantly at his side to secure to him the crowns of Denmark, Sweden, and Norway. The Viceroy of Wales refused to render homage to Canute, whom he treated as a usurper. Malcolm, King of Scotland, upheld the rights of the descendants of Ethelred to the throne of England. The Normans did not lend any help in these demonstrations, and Canute triumphed over the Welsh and the Scotch. The influence of the Christian religion was slowly but surely producing a good effect on the fierce Danes. Swain had been baptised, but he had afterwards sunk again into pagan practices. His son constructed churches and monasteries, and made a solemn pilgrimage to Rome, on foot, and with a wallet on his back, to obtain forgiveness for the crimes which he had committed. Already, in the midst of a warlike life, a sense of justice seemed to have developed itself in his soul. He had been guilty of killing a soldier in an outburst of passion. He descended from his throne, convoked his chiefs, and asked them to impose a penalty upon him. All remained silent. The king insisted, however, promising not to be offended. The chiefs left it to his own discretion, and Canute condemned himself to pay a fine of three times as much as the sum fixed by the Danish law as the penalty for murdering a soldier, adding at the same time nine golden talents as compensation. Having returned to England after his pilgrimage to Rome and a journey to Denmark, Canute applied himself to the administration of the laws which he had promulgated. I will have no money acquired by unjust means, he had said in a letter to Archbishop Elfric. The latter portion of the reign of the Dane was not characterised by any crime or act of oppression. Canute had learnt that there was a tribunal above to which he owed respect and submission. One day, as his courtiers were overrating his power, the king ordered that his throne should be placed upon the margin of the sea. The tide was rising. Canute, seated on the beach, ordered the waves to stop in their onward course. Ocean, he said, 
the earth upon which I sit is mine. You form a portion of my dominion. Do not rise as far as my feet. I forbid you. The sea still continued rising. It was already bathing the king's mantle when he turned to his flatterers. You see, he said, what human power is compared to that of him who says to the sea, Thou shalt go no further. And depositing his golden crown in the cathedral of Winchester, he refused thereafter to wear that emblem of sovereignty. End of chapter 4, part 1